Today's episode of Theoretically Speaking features Dr. Jensi Paulos from Novartis Pharmaceuticals, Dr. George Joseph from Bosch Health, and Dr. Michael Broder from the Partnership for Health Analytic Research. They join us to answer some top questions from a recent webinar around leading Delphi panels, their experience participating in the discussions, and how they've used these results. Let's jump in. Yeah, and what we've done when it's blinded, what we've done is we unblinded after the first draft of a manuscript is written because for the disclosures, for the people writing the manuscript, for the authors, they need to disclose who paid. And at that moment, they don't know. So they, we, and we write a paragraph in the methods that says, you know, everybody was blinded until the first draft of the paper was, was written. And, and that's been, we've been pretty successful. And so the, the idea is really just to say that while these conversations were going on and during the process, nobody knew who was paying for it. And of course, at the end, they, they do know. Then you said something else that I wanted to pick up on and I can't remember, but the maybe, um, George, any other comments you want to make? Otherwise, maybe we'll go to the questions and I'll see what, what questions are and we'll try to get answer them. As- I think there's some very interesting questions that are coming up. I think we should try. Okay. And- Okay. All right. Great. So let me, I'm looking at these and maybe uh, here's how well accepted, how well accepted are the published results of the Delphi panel? Have you seen many examples where it really changed how physicians thought about a particular topic? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So in my experience at RAND, I mean, what we were doing was develop, using these panels to develop criteria for whether a procedure was appropriate or not. And those we actually did before and after studies, after the, you know, these, the guidelines were, prom- were promulgated. And they did have some effect on practice. I mean, it's not changing practice is very difficult. Where they really had an effect is if an organization made an effort to take the guidelines and implement them. So some organizations like, you know, a Kaiser or Permanente, for example, or some other big organizations do kind of have a pro- internal processes where they try to get guidelines used. And so in, in a setting like that, it's, it's, it makes a bigger difference than if they're just published and, and, and left there. But you have to measure it to know. You have to measure it to know. I think they, they have an impact, but how big, I think it sort of depends. Let's see. Uh, okay, here's another one. Probabilistic elicitation to explore subjective uncertainty around key parameters has been accredited by NICE in the UK as the preferred method for eliciting uncertain model inputs. Does the panel have experience with this? And to what extent can the RAND UCLA method be used for these purposes? Yes. Yeah, so well, actually, actually, yeah. There are two parts to it. So in the example that we gave you today, we were using sickle cell and uh, all the slides that you saw, the disease itself is treated differently in the US versus the UK. That's because there's a, I guess, a lot more patients with sickle cell in the US. So uh, without going into too much specifics, there was a US model being built, which is what this was going to support the conceptual framework. There was also a parallel effort for an ex-US or what you call like a, a nice model that was being built. And again, if you if you can go back to that slide, slide 29, the clinical parameters that US physicians weigh may not be the same as what a UK physician will weigh because, can we go to slide 29 or 29? Yeah, I'm trying here. I think I got it now. 
And so what our recommendation is, if you want to submit, in, and I'm using sickle cell as an example, because this disease is very different in how it's treated in the US versus UK versus in Africa, I would recommend building your own conceptual framework as to the classification of that specific disease if it's different across the, the, the framework. And that's very, very important. So a US physician is not going to really care about what they do in the UK because they have different standards, different protocols in the ER and uh, different you know, metrics. So be mindful of that. So that's why we try to build two separate parallel models, one for the US using the Delphi panel and our colleagues worked on an ex-US, let's, let's assume it's a nice model that was being built with different set of clinicians uh, who practice in that particular country and therefore could conceptualize the model as it was fit for them. That's a good point and a good answer. And I think also to the questioner, and maybe to the to the questioner, I would also say that most of the work that we have done has been to develop clinical guidance, although we have used this method to develop um, estimates of various parameters for things that have been submitted to NICE or other regulatory agencies. And a couple of years ago, the decision support unit at NICE came up with a kind of a list of methods that they thought were appropriate to use when when there was uncertainty around estimates and expert elicitation is clearly one of them they they at least in my understanding of it they took a little bit of a agnostic stance about what the um, what the best method was but we've used this method to come up with estimates specific estimates of cost when there's no when there isn't a clear number there and also for quality of life when the we dealt with a very rare disease and we used the method to come up with estimates of quality of life for various disease states when there was just nothing realistic in the in the literature so we we have done that Okay, another one says, could you please give us a bit of insight when no consensus is actually achieved on one or two key criteria and how do we report the non-consensus? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, there is always, there are always places where there isn't consensus. It's just not in the nature of these types of groups to be able to come to 100% agreement. And what we try to do is report the areas of agreement and disagreement usually that there's some meaning to that disagreement so in that what's a good example of it you often say we often say in certain areas clinicians recommend or the experts recommend in this setting do this and in this setting either a b or c so that's kind of how we would handle the disagreement you know that people didn't there there was too much spread and we also, I'll just say a little bit more about disagreement. We use, we usually use a kind of a technical definition of, agree, of agreement that says that people can't be too far spread along the answers. So if everybody's kind of clustered in one place when they answer, then that's agreement. And if most people are clustered and they're one or two off on the edge, that's still agreement. But if there are people all over the map, that's disagreement. And there's some numerical ways of doing that. But, but really, we try to incorporate the, that into the guidance that, we, that comes out of the results. And then here's another one. We've gotten this question before. How do you deal with consensus feedback that's not in line with labeled indications? Yeah, I mean, what I would argue and have argued is that these are expert clinicians giving their opinion. They are not uh, bound by the label. As you know, practicing physicians can prescribe anything for, for whatever reason they think is appropriate. And so the resulting consensus statements and publication are not uh, a company sponsored. They're not saying those things. The company isn't saying those things. It's just, it's the clinician saying them. 
It hasn't been a problem. We've done panels where the entire question is often is, is practically outside the scope of what's the label indication, and it hasn't been a problem. I can see that, as George talked about, like kind of talking to legal and compliance folks and convincing them, and Jinsey mentioned in some ways, too, and I, and I think it's probably just a matter of helping them to see that that's what you're really doing, is helping, you're helping to guide these clinicians to share their knowledge. It's not, you know, the company that's, that's saying what to do here. Somebody had asked, I knew there was a question about numbers, and I, and I tried to say, I mean, we use 9 to 12 as our kind of ideal number, and that's sort of traditional. I've done them bigger. It's hard to have a conversation when it gets much bigger. I did one in for end-of-life care, appropriate use of end-of-life care. We had about 20 people. Um, it, what happens is that you it's really too hard to get each person to share their opinion on a particular area of disagreement that takes too long so you have to use this method where you get people to offer their rationale and then you can't you just kind of have to ask does that match other people's rationale for why they answered so they don't get as much opportunity to interact and talk so i think it's not as enjoyable for the panelists um, and just it's it's a harder it's a harder slog for the moderator in a delphi not the modified delphi process but in a delphi you can use a lot more people and so that can be a method to where you can get a lot more input so it's it's relatively easy to send out these surveys and aggregate the results so you know 20 30 people is is reasonable for the for a delphi that doesn't have an in-person component to it do you have any um, have you had any challenges using the chair to recruit from an ethics compliance perspective we haven't we don't we don't ask the chair to do the recruitment just to be clear on that what we're doing is we're eliciting names and then matching those names to the areas that we still need people in. So, oh, do you know somebody who's in community practice in the Western part of the country? Or do you know a radiologist who does this at another hospital and, and that kind of thing? And then we, and we talk to them. Um, so, so that works out okay. And then um, as long as you tell your medical compliance group, like the recruitment is done through advice from your chair as well as the medical team. There usually is no questions regarding that. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Theoretically Speaking and that you'll tune in to future episodes where we chat with pharma value, evidence, and access experts. Don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.